This is the 67th edition of WFA Talks. I'm news director Greg Collard, and across from me in studio, in Studio D at WFAE, is Tom Bullock uh, bouncing his head back and forth to this theme music. music. And I, I have to ask you, you, uh, you always talk about what, what episode number it is. When we hit 100, do you get like a set of steak knives? question. I should. Let's see if we can make 100. All right. (laughs) And also with us is Michael Tomzik, our healthcare reporter, and also uh, uh, he primarily covers healthcare, but he covers sports and voter ID trial. You've been up in, you were in Winston-Salem this week. The state's, uh, the couple trials you've, you've covered over the voter Overhaul legislation passed a couple of years ago at the General Assembly. You were in Winston-Salem Monday uh, for the opening arguments of the voter ID trial, and you might be heading back there today. Uh, yeah, we're, as soon as we find out if closing arguments are today, we'll we'll hit the road and get back over there. It's the and today is Friday. Yes, <laughs> and it's the latest piece in what has been a, a two-year saga since um, Republican state lawmakers passed these really sweeping election changes that that affected how people vote, where they vote, when they can vote, and what they need to bring to vote. Now, how is the, the, this one is different from the other one covered everything except for voter ID. And remind us again why they separated the two, because voter ID was part of that overall package of legislation. Exactly. Uh, Right before the trial started this summer that was supposed to just be on the whole shebang, um, Republican state lawmakers quietly and quickly passed a new law that amended the ID part of that overhaul that essentially watered it down. Uh, Whereas it was one of the strictest ID requirements in the country with this change right before the trial started this summer, um, all of a sudden, there were all these reasonable excuses to not have an ID. They included disability, transportation, um, finances, et cetera. And so with that, obviously, these both sides have been building a case for, at that point, it was like a year and a half based on what the law was. So they asked for an extension to try to figure out what this meant for their case. Um, and so that's what pushed this ID part of the trial. You can think of it as like a carve out that is now playing out this week. So if, if they watered it down so much, what's the big deal? That's exactly what the state says. The state says there is no longer a case. I mean, basically, if you don't have an ID, as long as you say you had one of these excuses, you'll still be able to vote. Um, so What's the other side of that? <laughs> the the other side is there, there still technically is an ID requirement. Mm-hmm. Like just because there's a carve out doesn't mean uh, the, the requirement doesn't exist. And And there has been a bigger emphasis, the Justice Department in particular. It's one of the things that's a highlight sort of headline of this case is that you have the federal government suing North Carolina over these changes. And the U.S. Justice Department is arguing – um, more focused on the intent of lawmakers, and they're probably making that switch because it's going to be tougher to show that this thing's going to have a discriminatory effect, even though African Americans are disproportionately likely to not have an ID because of the excuses. Most people should still be able to vote. So the Justice Department this week has been focusing on what lawmakers knew about those disproportionate numbers, um, what they have said about it, and they're trying to see if they can prove they intended to discriminate. Because if you can if you can prove that, then uh, then you win the case. Uh, is that? But how are they trying to prove that? They can't. They how how are they trying to prove that? They can't uh, call lawmakers to the stand, right? Right, and that's been one of the the interesting friction points of the past two years as these trials have played out. Is lawmakers are using their legislative privilege, um, which they have. It's a it's something they're allowed to do under law. They don't have to testify if they don't want to. And basically, the thought there is you don't want them to be spending all their time defending what they pass in court. So because of that, um, a lot of it is kind of a numbers game, or at least that's that's how the state describes it. I mean, you have very clear evidence of a disproportionate impact. Lawmakers had specifically asked the State Board of Elections as they were working on this law 
for a racial breakdown, for an age breakdown, for all this different data on who might not have IDs and how that broke down by race. Uh, and that's been a really key part of the argument is if they knew it would have this disproportionate impact, um, can we use that to get to the idea that there was intent? Uh, Michael, one of the things I found really fascinating in your story uh, on Monday, the first day of this trial, was the Wisconsin professor who basically um, is an expert on election, you know, electioneering, as it were, and literally laid out the case that if the point of this law was not to discriminate or if to really let me rephrase that, if the point of this law was to stop voter fraud, that he that they should focus not on voter ID, people who vote in person, but on absentee ballots. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of the changes, both ID and some of the other ones, cuts to early voting, eliminating same-day registration, get at this argument that we did this to prevent voter fraud. Uh, And what's been very clear over the last year and a half, essentially, of covering these trials is that there is almost no evidence of voter fraud, A, but that doesn't mean there's not a real risk. Um, and the U.S. Supreme Court has mentioned in, in the past that like, there is a real risk for fraud, and lawmakers routinely pass things to try to mitigate a risk. So his point essentially was that uh, when you look at, at the potential for fraud, there's a much higher potential uh, if, um, with mail-in ballots. So if you wanted to cut down on the thing that's most likely to lead to fraud, you should make it harder to do mail-in ballots. Instead of that, this overhaul really focused on in-person types of voting and changing them from that regard. And the numbers uh, uh, match up racially with that, that you're disproportionately white demographic does the mail-in voting, disproportionately African-American demographic does the early voting and the in-person voting. Um, I should point out, though, that there also was, I think the, the state increased the number of witnesses, maybe like by one, who needed to sign the mail-in ballot. So there was at least a change there. It's not like it stood pat, mm-hmm. but it certainly was not uh, changed to as extreme a degree or to as wide a degree as the in-person stuff. And not only the mail-in ba- ballots most likely to be from older white voters, but I assume more um, more likely to be Republican voters? Exactly. And that is the underlying theme across all of this. That, that's what brings it all together is, is partisan politics. I mean, you have North Carolina is one of the largest purple states. It's been very hotly contested the past two presidential elections. Uh, these things all disproportionately impact, you know, Democrats as well. So there's been this this argument through the course of these cases that you know, why can't these just be partisan changes? And essentially changing things for party reasons legally flies. Where it gets tricky is where you have race and party mixing. And because African Americans, especially these past two presidential elections in North Carolina, have voted so overwhelmingly Democratic, it's like, how can you change something that's that's against Democrats, but that's not also going to seem racially motivated? Do you ever get a sense in covering both of these trials that both sides are just the pe- people are challenging this. Go to the extreme examples of problems, and at the same time, the people who are defending these laws are being too flipped that it's no big deal. That both sides kind of go go to the extremes. Do you ever do you ever get that sense in here in both of these arguments? I think it's a really interesting question. Um, from the media portrayal, and especially from the statements that are put out, say by the North Carolina Republican Party or by the North Carolina NAACP, yes. They make it seem extreme. What I've really enjoyed about covering this case in court is that the court arguments are not. The court arguments really get at these fact-based details of, you know, the numbers and, 
you know, actual people testifying their personal experiences. And then on the state side, they, um, you know, make a very solid case about lots of other states already are doing these things. Would it be unconstitutional there as well? Um, polls showed that the majority of North Carolinians wanted voter ID. Is, is it so wrong for lawmakers to pass something the majority of their constituents want? And, and this idea that, that it's going to discriminate, the state really looks at that as um, speculation because one of the things the state's attorneys keep saying over and over again in court is, you know, show me one lawmaker who you can prove had a discriminatory intent or show me one person who is not going to be able to vote because of this ID provision. They're essentially arguing, you know, when you look at the numbers, kind of the big game, you see the point. But if you boil down to who's this actually impacting, the state argues it's nobody. Everyone is impacted the same way. Anything else, Tom? Mm-mm, no, no, just I, I will say one thing that Michael won't say. Uh, if you're interested at all in, in the background of this, there were, you know, just really solid, really solid reporting on voter ID in North Carolina. You've got to go to our website and check out Michael's stuff because it is truly oh, top-notch. I, I've said it many times. I think I don't think any reporter knows this issue better than you. No, oh, thanks, guys. I appreciate <laughs> that. And it, it's because of time. I mean, you've let me go to, you know, we've paid for hotels in Winston-Salem. <laughs> we've spent two years covering this. I mean, it's, you know, I've had the, op- you've given me the opportunity to go do it. So it's been, it's been fun. Well, it makes sense to continue to uh, put to put you in those situations because you've done such a good job, and this is kind of a a convoluted way of trying to uh, of a segue to your common sense reporting. It's a common uh, sense thing to do. <coughs> yes, you, do I'm referring to uh, Tom. You had uh, just a fun story, and but entertaining yet informative story this week on the history of the political use of the phrase common sense legislation or just common sense in general. And I, I just, I, I thought it was fascinating. I loved it. Yeah. Tom, it was one of my favorite, just short stories you've done. I thought it was great. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It was, it was funny. It, it, you know, the genesis of that one wasn't a court case or a crazy lot. It was just the fact that, I mean, I'm a political geek. I watch this <laughs> stuff constantly. I cover it, you know, it's pretty much all encompassing, but when you keep hearing the same phrase over and over and over ad nauseum uh, from differing sides on the same issue, um, you begin to wonder, when did common sense stop being common sense and start being a political weapon? So I hopped on the Googles and dug around forever, and it took a while, but I actually found this really, really fascinating researcher. Um, for, her name is uh, Sophia Rosenfeld, and she's a history professor at Yale. She wrote a book. She had the same feeling. She actually researched it and wrote a book that was a, a political history of the phrase common sense. And it was fascinating because I kind of – I didn't know where it would go. I, I know, you know, Thomas Paine and his pamphlet back during the American, you know, revolution. I figured it might start there, but it actually goes back to uh, – it goes back to England to 1688. Could we cue some, like, old English know, music right? right here? I know, <laughs> um, Some little horns or something? What, hence in the day when King James II was deposed by the angry mobs in the Glorious <laughs> Revolution, which is actually what it was called, the Glorious Revolution. How cool is that? Um, but, you know, back then, uh, Parliament uh, lawmakers w- would refer to common sense as a way to find actually common ground. That they would say, okay, let's – we've been warring – King's gone. Let's let's let bygones be bygones. Let's use common sense to figure out how to solve the political problems. What a wonderful idea! <laughs> what a brilliant use of the term. And it didn't take long. She found for that to be flipped completely on its head, 
and basically to be used as a way of saying anybody who would oppose what I'm telling you right now is an idiot. Thus, enter politics. Um, it's it, it was really fascinating. If you get a chance, listen to it. Um, you can find excerpts of her book all over the the interwebs if you search um, Sophia Rosenfeld. Um, but she was really, really fascinating. And you know, the hardest question when you're doing a political history of anything that you ask somebody is, why? Why is this such a thing? Especially when you're talking about a political phrase that's turned into a weapon. And she had this great answer, which was basically. When you have really divisive politics, like you do right now, it's so easy to say, well, common sense dictates because that is like basically bludgeoning your opponent with they're the outlier, they're the crazy one, they're the one who has no idea what's going on, and it turns into a really potent attack. I feel like what you're saying really kind of gets at why we have like why it's why we have so many lawmakers or politicians in general talking past each other now. It's like, you know, we can't even get to a place where we can agree on what common sense means. Common sense is now just another buzzword that's thrown around. It's a total – I think you're totally right. And in, I also think that it's gone from just being a very smartly deployed political tactic to being um, the secret ingredient in everyone's Kool-Aid. I really think that now they've said common sense so many times that now they truly are beginning to believe – that it is, in fact, common sense. And when you're dealing with really complicated issues, it's not something just to be bandied about. I mean, honestly, if you think about it, how many world issues can really, truly, easily be solved politically by common sense? Uh, it's a far more nuanced world than that, and it would be wonderful if if solutions were that easy, but it's not. And But I, I really do, I think you're onto something, and I think it really is just kind of, you know, it's endemic in the fact that as political bubbles kind of shrink and separate that people really start believing that their own ideology is the only possible answer. Well, I won't be surprised if we hear the phrase common sense next week uh, from both sides uh, in the debate over whether to expand uh, Charlotte's uh, non-discrimination ordinance to include LGBT people. Uh, that's the debate is coming, coming again. Mayor Jennifer Roberts is leading the way. Um, yes, she is, but the debate ain't coming quite yet. Here's, okay. here's the funny thing about this, and I'll be there on Monday night. It'll be very interesting. Um, so the Charlotte city government is holding a meeting on Monday night that is going to discuss at first what exactly uh, the changes are that, that are proposed, what they mean, and how it would, would or would not impact Charlotteans. It'll start in a way that you would kind of expect. It would start with city, it will start with uh, city attorney um, Bob Hageman um, laying out exactly what the proposal would be. But this is not a city council meeting. There will be no votes taken. There will actually be no official debate because this is just an education, basically just an outreach moment that it looks like uh, Mayor Roberts has, has requested um, the city community relations folks to put on. You will get a, a, a little bit of extra entertainment with this, though, and I do mean that in the truest sense, because even though last, last year when they debated this, there were well more than 100 speakers, very passionate, protesters outside, chamber was filled with people. Um, they're not, they're, their words will be heard, but they won't necessarily be there because the city is hiring four actors to portray in front of an audience exactly what was said at the city council meeting. <laughs> I know. 
in the city that brought us the Mecklen Burgers, oh, the city that brought us the show on public TV. You the know city, how much they're spending on that? I'm finding out because I'm dying to know. I mean, it would be obviously cheaper just to replay it, what was said at the city council meeting if they want to do discussion. And in fact, here's an interesting point, Michael. The the actors are writing their scripts from that source material. They're going back to what was said. <laughs> and appreciate their research skills. Exactly. To at the debate. The idea behind it is an earnest one. And I mean that in a proper sense. It's to create a safe space where people can then address these issues. And after the actors perform, people get into small groups and kind of discuss things. But this is not policy based. This is not policy driven. This is not policy making. Mm -hmm. This is this is community outreach, which is important to do. But this is just a little odd, I have to say. It's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I mean, as journalists, we're a cynical bunch when we hear things True. like this. So, but... But I'm excited <laughs> to go. Are you kidding me? Like, I can't... I, I mean, how is this going to work? What's going to happen? What is the end game of this? And it may just be outreach. And, you know, if it really does help people understand, that's great. Of course, the most controversial part of this... Uh, of this update, the city's uh, non-discrimination ordinance is the part involving bathrooms. It lets transgender people uh, use the bathrooms of their choice. When it comes to acting out the debate from last year, I, I'm skeptical of how effective this this is going to be because they're just doing this from the perspective the people that are in charge of this are people who are in support of this law. I don't know how, how, how much it's going to do to reach out to people who are in opposition to this. I think it's a great point. And I also think you know, community outreach is incredibly important. Uh, community outreach and getting people involved is hugely important, especially for a city like Charlotte, where there's a fabric here that really does bind people together. It's not like a Chicago or, you know, a larger city. There really is, you know, the sense of it being kind of a small town, at least to me. And the thing that's interesting, though, is the best way to do community outreach, you would think, is to let people talk to let people express their views. And yeah, they can get nasty. People can get nasty. But you need to directly be able to have a dialogue that doesn't include written dialogue, mm -hmm. Aaron Sorkin style. That sounds like a common sense solution to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to be covering that meeting Monday. and Yeah, and actually, um, you know, we'll have a Charlotte Talks, too, that kind of gets into it on Monday morning as well. Great. All right. Look forward to that. Uh, one other item on the agenda. Didn't put it in our, in our notes, but uh, the Super Bowl. We're not, we're not going to have this. So <laughs> Carolina Panthers, Denver Broncos. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? Okay. Maybe we should do a story on it. Yeah. <laughs> Public radio, man. Yeah. Unless it comes with a tote bag, we don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of that, though, uh, one of our former reporters, uh, Tanner Latham, lives in the Bay Area now, and he's going to be doing a couple stories for us next week. Yeah, uh, he's a much beloved guy in the newsroom who now is the most hated man in the newsroom, I think, since he gets to do the Super Bowl coverage. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm more than happy that he gets to handle that. But we'll be doing cool stuff from, from in town as well. So, well, What, what do you think is going to happen? Someone will say hike. Hike. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm a huge football fan. I'm not gonna try to predict this one because I do think it is gonna be. I mean, on paper, this should be awesome. That's yeah. what I'm hoping. Yeah, my my prediction is a great game, and I hope that's what it is. I'm I'm uh, I'm intrigued by. I just I love the matchup of Denver's great defense going to go, going totally. up and trying to stop uh, Cam. I think it's just gonna be a great great battle. I predict. I'm not gonna predict a winner or loser, other than if Carolina has not scored after the first quarter that they will lose. Interesting. That That's all. I, I, they've been off to such fast starts. 
Mm-hmm. That's my. I'm not saying that they won't come get off to a fast start. It's just if it, that's the result hmm. after the first quarter. No, but that's. Sense. But you know, being the the NFL expert, I am. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys ever um, read fan sided on Sports Illustrated. They did the classic thing, which is now classic. Um, and as a Madden player, I kind of like it. Where they, as a Madden player, <laughs> where they actually run X number of simulations using the current rosters, including injuries. They ran. I mean, it's some crazy number of games. And the final that they put out, they actually write it up like it's an actual game. Yeah. And uh, their their uh, their result was that the I think it was thirty four nothing. Carolina Panthers. Wow. What? Yeah. I don't know how I think Denver's defense is going to say. Yeah. What? Uh, that's why we don't play just the video game. <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. Another uh, another edition in the back. Getting you, towards Greg. 100. All right. Mm-hmm.